This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castillo. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America. On this edition of the program, an update on Afghanistan. It has been six months since the Taliban's takeover of Kabul. Six months since the United States withdrew all its military forces and embassy personnel after 20 years of trying to stabilize and prevent the very Taliban takeover which occurred. Hello again, I'm Carol Castiel. VOA's Margaret Bashir reports that UN officials say a growing hunger crisis could kill more Afghans than in the preceding 20 years of war. The World Food Program says 9 million Afghans are just one step from famine. Moreover, the Afghan economy is deteriorating by the day, especially because billions of dollars in foreign assistance was withheld when the Taliban seized power. Speaking of which, Controversy is swirling around U.S. President Joe Biden's recent executive order dealing with $7 billion in Afghan assets in the U.S. banking system. Many Afghans spanning the ideological spectrum are denouncing the U.S. decision to set aside half of this amount, $3.5 billion, for families of victims of the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. The remaining $3.5 billion is slated for a trust fund to be managed by the United Nations to provide aid to Afghans. U.S. and Afghan critics argue that the entire $7 billion in reserves belong to the Afghan people. The U.S. Institute of Peace says that the Taliban's interim government is widely viewed as insular and exclusive. It has restricted rights of girls and women, and it has at times turned a blind eye to abductions beatings, and in some cases, the torture and killing of journalists, human rights activists, and former civilian and military officials. In addition, Taliban and civilians continue to face threats from ISIS-K, the Khorasan Network, a self-proclaimed branch of the militant Islamic State group active in Central and South Asia. Well, for more on the state of play in Afghanistan, as we mark six months since the takeover of the Taliban, we turn to two distinguished regional experts. Michael Kugelman is deputy director of the Asia program and senior associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center. That's a policy group based here in Washington. And Elizabeth Threlkeld. She is a senior fellow and director of the South Asia program at the Stimson Center, a think tank also based in Washington. Before joining Stimson, she served as a foreign service officer with the U.S. Department of State in Islamabad and Peshawar, Pakistan, and Monterey, Mexico. And both guests join me via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Thanks very much, Carol. Well, Michael Kugelman, let me begin with you. Six months hence, where do we stand now since the fall of Kabul with the Taliban in control? Well, let's start with the good news. I think it's important to note that there is no war going on right now. The Taliban takeover did bring an end to a war that for Afghans had lasted not 20 years, but 40 years. There's been no armed conflict taking place in Afghanistan since the Taliban takeover. And that's no small matter. But of course, even if Afghanistan is theoretically at peace in the sense that there's no war going on, I think it would be inaccurate to say that Afghanistan is at peace, just because what we've seen over the last six months is that the Taliban has cracked down heavily against journalists, against women activists. It's been carrying out, according to the UN, a series of reprisal attacks against those loyal to the previous government. And of course, the Taliban is grappling with incredibly challenging, serious policy crises, mainly this 
humanitarian and economic crisis. And, you know, we've all heard the very troubling figures stated by UN officials and others talking about the millions in Afghanistan that are on the verge of starvation and the fact that a million kids could die of starvation in the coming year. And so I think for me, six months later, that's really what stands out the most, the fact that Afghanistan now represents the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world and with no clear end in sight at all. Turning to you, Elizabeth Threlkeldin, welcome to Encounter. This is your debut, hopefully not the last. What is your take on the state of play in Afghanistan with the Taliban in control? It is, as Michael was saying, as you noted in the introduction, Afghanistan right now is on a precipice and in many ways has already crossed over, already begun this descent into the world's worst humanitarian crisis. The especially concerning dynamic is the extent to which policy choices are worsening the situation. There was already a pre-existing drought, which has had a devastating impact on harvests and the availability of crops. But much of what we're seeing play out is the result of economic and political policies. And I think it is important to keep that in mind as policymakers I hope, begin to feel more urgency in addressing some of these issues. Overall, I think, Carol, there are no easy answers here. That has long been the case in Afghanistan. And going forward, the question facing the U.S. and others in the international community is how to balance those objectives. How do you prioritize and provide urgently needed relief while also deciding where your political priorities are and how to deal with the fact that the Taliban are in control of Afghanistan, even as we seek to alleviate the worst impacts of this humanitarian crisis. No question about it. And it sounds like your doggy in the background is none too happy about the situation either, Elizabeth. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Well, let me turn to Michael Kugelman. Michael, this question of policy choices that Elizabeth referred to as worsening the crisis, I am assuming she is talking about not just the Taliban, who seem to be extremely poor in the way they're governing, but certainly the international community trying to thread this needle between addressing the dire conditions exacerbated by drought, by the horrific economic conditions without a productive economy, the famine and so forth, and at the same time, you know, not giving any legitimacy to the Taliban. So let's turn to this $7 billion controversy that I spoke of in the introduction. $7 billion in frozen assets from Afghanistan Central Bank are in the U.S. banking system. What do you make of this decision of President Biden to sort of split the difference, provide $3.5 billion you know, to Afghans, but reserve the other half for this litigation process that may even go to the victims of the 9-11 families? It certainly is a very complicated issue. And of course, the important context here is that there are about $9 billion in Afghan central bank assets that are held overseas. $7 billion are held in the U.S. and then the other $2 billion are held in Europe. And these assets were frozen after the Taliban took over. 
and there have been mounting pressure for many Afghans as well as many uh, others who are concerned about the situation in Afghanistan, expressing concern that as the humanitarian and economic crisis have worsened in Afghanistan, it's not morally right for the U.S. to be sitting on these frozen assets and when they're so badly needed. Now, in terms of the executive order itself, you know, I would argue that the Biden administration, quite frankly, did not initially do very well with the messaging in terms of explaining what it actually entails. Because when news first broke, when there was media reportage from the New York Times and elsewhere, the immediate suggestion was that the Biden administration had essentially decided that it was going to take out $3.5 billion and make it available to some 9-11 families that had been suing for access to that funding. But in fact, what we now understand is that what the administration has sought to do was to carve out $3.5 billion to protect that and keep it away from those representing 9-11 families trying to gain access to the full $7 billion. So as the government has in more recent days suggested it, the idea behind this executive order is to ensure that half of this money would be protected from this 9-11 families litigation. And the idea, as you had suggested in your introduction, is to make $3.5 billion available for the Afghan people. The problem, though, is that there is no time frame whatsoever for when the administration will have that money actually available to be sent to Afghanistan. And there's also no time frame for a decision on how that money would actually be used. Tom West, senior U.S. official, said recently that there's been no decision made that it would be used for humanitarian assistance. And there are many that have argued that it should actually be used to recapitalize the Afghan central bank. So I think that even if it was well-intentioned, it's unclear to me that we're going to see this money going to Afghanistan anytime soon. And the bigger, broader issue, which I think is one of principle, is that it doesn't seem right for the U.S. to simply unilaterally make a decision about how Afghan central bank assets are to be used or deployed. And that's why many Afghans continue to be very upset about this decision and for reasons that I can sympathize with. Turning back to you, Elizabeth Threlkeldon, I just want to make sure I interpreted your previous response correctly, because you did talk about policy choices are worsening the crisis. To what extent are you referring to choices by the international community, like the United States and others? And to what extent are you referring to the Taliban themselves? Yeah, thanks, Carol. I think there is plenty of blame to go around. And especially on the part of the U.S. administration, I really do sympathize with this impossible situation. The Taliban has not done themselves any favors in terms of how they've approached their governance of Afghanistan over the first six months. But by the same token, they are an insurgent group that is in the very difficult process of transitioning from fighting to governing. The last time they were in power in Afghanistan, it was a very different country. And they have inherited an economy and a government that has for two decades now been hugely reliant on the flow of international assistance and funding to prop up government ministries, you know, to the tune of some estimates show around 75% of Afghan GDP. So that is in many ways an impossible situation. But when you look at the actions the Taliban have taken in terms of their own governance policies, human rights issues, those are not making the job of the international community 
any easier to the extent that the U.S. and others have called for, for example, an inclusive government. And the Taliban have not responded. There are, as you mentioned in your introduction, concerns about abductions and shrinking space for women in public life. But by the same token, from the Taliban standpoint, they have been most focused on regime consolidation over the past six months. And so there is a desire to avoid taking steps that would be seen as controversial within the organization. And particularly if those are seen as being taken in response to international pressure. So what I was primarily referring to was this economic crisis and the extent to which the indecision and inaction on the part of the international community. And I think a slow shift from the immediate crisis response and a lot of focus on evacuations to what is now more of a recognition of the humanitarian crisis that's unfolded. You know, to Michael's point, I would echo a lot of the <laughs> frustration and disappointment with how this decision was originally messaged. I think there are many question marks on what the decision on the $7 billion in Afghan assets means for the future. But what was most striking to me in this instance is <laughs> it's one of the only times in recent memory where when I log into Twitter and see Afghans of all stripes, there's been unanimity whether you are someone who is sympathetic with the Taliban or the former government, there was widespread condemnation of this decision, not just within Afghanistan, within the wider region as well. And that is striking and something that I think will be difficult for the Biden administration to work through, even as they themselves are in some ways constrained by this ongoing litigation. We'll have more in just a moment. First, you're listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. My guests are Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program and Senior Associate for South Asia at the Wilson Center, and Elizabeth Threlkeld, from whom you just heard, a Senior Fellow and Director of the South Asia Program at the Stimson Center. We're taking stock of the state of play in Afghanistan six months after the Taliban took control of the government. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to Nakmal Hakiki from Kabul, Afghanistan. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, back to our discussion about Afghanistan. So back to you, Michael Kugelman. A question about the Taliban themselves now, six months in power. Do you see any splits within the Taliban, the hardliners versus the so-called progressives, if there are any? Talk about any kind of uh, friction, because clearly the international community wants to see concessions made in order for them to go anywhere near recognizing them. So there have been some long-standing factional differences within the Taliban, which continued into the period after they took over and when they were forming their interim government. As I understand it, there have been some pretty severe disagreements between, I guess, what one could simplistically described as hardliners and moderates in terms of what the government should look like and so on. But what I think has become clear is that the hardliners have won out. I mean, they occupy the top positions in the government. And if you look at how the Taliban has carried out its activities over the last six months, when you think of the biggest public spectacles that have taken place, what do you think of? Well, you think of these ceremonies that have honored the families of Taliban suicide bombers. 
There have also been a few major military parades where the Taliban has paraded large weaponry seized from the Afghan military. That doesn't seem to be the best way to win domestic legitimacy and goodwill when the country is literally starving to death. And I think that suggests a desire on the part of the Taliban leadership to cater to those hardliners and to try to continue to reassert this idea of the Taliban of what it's been uh, over the years, what it stood for as a violent insurgency. And I think it struggled to transition to uh, the role of a government. And this is frequently the case when you look at insurgencies in the past that have gained power. They really struggle when they're in power. And I think it's particularly difficult now because Afghanistan is facing the types of policy challenges that even the most experienced policymakers would really struggle to get a handle on. But this is the Taliban, which really has no type of real experience with governance other than its emphasis on delivering swift and brutal and violent justice as an insurgency and when operating shadow states. So the Taliban are in over their heads for sure. And they don't appear to have any type of development model. They have been collecting revenues, as I understand understand it, but uh, it's unclear what they're doing with those revenues. It clearly is not enough. And my sense is the Taliban is really hoping that the world will eventually bail it out with more assistance. But you know, as we've discussed, that's not going to happen in a big way because the world has not recognized the Taliban. And most countries, including in the West, are not willing to provide financial assistance to Afghanistan beyond the humanitarian assistance that we're seeing now. So uh, the Taliban is certainly in a difficult spot. There's no viable opposition to the Taliban right now, other than Islamic State Khorasan. But you do have to wonder, if it continues to struggle to address these incredibly difficult crises, what that could entail for its control and its hold on power in the months ahead. Elizabeth Threlkeld, you both paint a very dire picture of the situation. What's your take on the Taliban itself, fishers, and how should the international community deal with this conundrum of needing to and probably very much wanting to address famine and the plight of women and children at the same time not wanting to channel the money or funding through the government are the mechanisms for humanitarian aid sufficient to get to the people because they are certainly the victims of this bad governance and repression Again, it comes down to the difficulty of the situation, as Michael was mentioning, the economic collapse of a state, the lack of capitalization of the Afghan Central Bank. This is a crisis that any specific piece of what's unfolding would itself represent a real challenge for experienced technocrats, let alone this kind of domino effect that we're seeing. And In terms of how the Taliban is approaching it, it is faced with, at least as I see it from here in Washington, the steps that the international community is looking for the Taliban to take in order to make them more acceptable, to gain some legitimacy, are exactly those steps that for ideological and cultural reasons are very difficult for the Taliban to countenance taking. And at a time when perhaps they are starting to realize that they have bitten off more than they can chew, and there is discontent within the country in a real crisis, it seems to me that they are less likely to take those steps simply because they are more focused on their own regime survival and making sure that, for example, disaffected members don't start to join their own enemies in IS, Islamic State Khorasan province. So they face this internal threat that I think is constraining their own options. 
I would certainly recommend your listeners, if they're interested, to check out Special Representative Tom West in the appearance that he made earlier this week at USIP, where he was laying out some of the details of how the U.S. and the international community have tried to thread that needle and provide humanitarian assistance without running afoul of these continuing sanctions, for example, that restrict activities. One of the big issues that he highlighted is the fact that a lot of these financial transfers require facilitation by commercial banks. And doing business in Afghanistan is both risky and unprofitable. And so trying on the part of the government to to incentivize or compel banks to process those transfers has not succeeded so far. It's not a power that the government has, the administration has. And so even something as simple as looking at this question of how do you recapitalize the Afghan economy, there is more that the U.S. could do in terms of providing clarity and relief letters But even with the steps that the Treasury Department has taken, there are other impediments along the way. And so looking forward to what that means in terms of the situation, the hearing that happened on Afghanistan on the Hill also uh, earlier this week, I think, was telling because of what's becoming a moral hazard problem. Whereas Michael was suggesting, the Taliban seem to believe that the international community is going to bail them out, is going to inject some liquidity and provide humanitarian assistance in order to alleviate the most immediate suffering of the population. But that is not anywhere approaching a long-term recipe for stability and could, in fact, come far too late to prevent some really tragic outcomes in Afghanistan, given the estimates of the percentage of the population dealing with acute famine right now. As we close, Michael Kugelman, if it were up to you to make a decision with regard to how to deal with the Taliban at this point, given the humanitarian crisis, the economic disaster... What criteria would you recommend that the international community use to determine at what point they should engage, you know, with the Taliban or should they wait until they change heart, even though we're not seeing any signs of that? As you said, the hardliners are in control. We're already seeing considerable levels of engagement with the Taliban, even though no country has recognized the Taliban government. Most governments, including the U.S. government, feel comfortable in negotiating with and engaging with the Taliban in order to pursue their goals and interests. And for the U.S., that entails negotiating with the Taliban to try to ensure that humanitarian assistance flowing in to the country is not stolen or diverted or whatever the case may be by the Taliban. So that's encouraging. I think that we need to change the way that we think about how the Taliban fits into this whole idea of delivering money to the country. It is completely unrealistic to think that we could send assistance into the country and not have the Taliban be in a position to grab some of it, so to speak. The Taliban is in full control, right? It controls 100% of the country. The entire Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the pre-Taliban state, has collapsed, melted away, and so on. So given the scale of the economic crisis right now, my sense is that we need to go beyond the humanitarian assistance and figure out ways to inject more liquidity into the economy so that there's more cash that's available to be used to get the economy back and running again. And I think that we should be thinking about the question of how to minimize the risks of the Taliban getting access to that money, as opposed to thinking about how to do whatever is possible to ensure the Taliban does not get access to any of that money. 
How do you see it, Elizabeth Threlkeld? Should the United States and others, you know, stop waiting for the Taliban to treat women better and become more westernized or modernized and deal with the situation as it is and try to get more liquidity into the country um, and not worry so much about how much of it might fall into the hands of the Taliban? I very much agree with what Michael had laid out. And just to add, you know, I find it telling that in conversations that I've had with those who are concerned about the rights of women and of civil society actors in Afghanistan, they themselves have made the point very clearly that the first priority needs to be preserving lives and that it is important to maintain a focus on rights issues and to do that diplomatically. But fundamentally, the priority right now is survival. And that, I think, needs to be the guide in terms of how the U.S. and other actors respond. Humanitarian assistance is fundamentally not enough. Well, these are early days and we will be following this story in the weeks and months to come. For now, I'm afraid that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guests, Michael Kugelman, Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the Wilson Center, and Elizabeth Threlkeld, Senior Fellow and Director of the South Asia Program at the Stimson Center. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. 